for years, uh, I've had the opportunity to coach basketball. I, I love basketball. I grew up playing it my whole life. Uh, coached for several years, uh, junior varsity and varsity basketball in South Carolina. And through those years of coaching, there were certain patterns that you would see emerge every year. And one of the things that I would see that would happen over and over as I coached basketball is every year, about two weeks into the season, two to three weeks in, you'd be putting in all these plays and teaching them how to do certain plays and the way we were going to run things. And what I would do is when we were going over these plays, I would blow my whistle and I'd ask them just to stop right where they were so we could kind of talk about what was happening. And this would happen every year at about the three-week mark. Kid would get the ball. He'd be wide open right by the basket and I'd blow the whistle um, and say, what are you doing right now? And he'd go, well, we're running this play, and this guy's going over here, and this guy's going over here, and I'm looking to pass it to him. they go, no, but where are you right now? And he'd go, well, I'm right here by the basket. And i go, and you're wide open, right? And he'd go, well, yeah. And i go, well, why did you not shoot it? You can make that shot. You're right by the basket. Why are you not? He goes, but coach, we're running this play. And I'm supposed to be looking for that guy and that guy. And you go, yeah, 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 but what's the point of running plays? And they go, well, we're trying to score. Well, you're wide open with a shot you can make. Why are you still running the play? Shoot the ball. And they'd all look at me like I was crazy. It was because they had gotten this tunnel vision of learning these plays. And we have to do it this way. And we go here and then we go this. And they forgot the big picture. They forgot that you only run plays to get good shots to try to score. You don't run the plays to run the plays. You run the plays to be able to score baskets. And sometimes we do that in our life. We get kind of lost in the things that are around us that we forget the big picture. We get so focused on one little thing. I used to call it tunnel vision, right? They're so focused on running the play, they forgot the big picture that we're trying to score baskets. The same is true sometimes in our work, sometimes in our family, sometimes in our faith. We start to focus on things that are not all that important, that we lose sight of the big picture. And so as we step into this season of Advent, as we start to think about the coming of Jesus into the world, right? the Jesus become God coming incarnate in the flesh. We say Advent. Advent just means arrival, the season of arrival. As we think about Jesus coming, we want to kind of refocus on what's the big picture. We want to be reminded of what is true and what God has done and what is the big picture in all of it. We want to see clearly the bullseye as we come into the season and not just the season, but in every day of our life, we want to make sure that we see that God is supreme in all things and what he's doing. And so as we start this morning, I want us just to read for just a second together from Ephesians chapter one. And if you want to turn there, that's great. You actually just going to go right in your Bible, two books, second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. I'm just going to read two verses. It's on 12, 16. If you have the pew Bible. But Ephesians chapter one, verses three and four, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus and listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And I'm going to stop right there. And I want you just to think about the implications of what God's word says there. That before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Jesus to be holy and blameless before him. And so that means that before God created anything, before he spoke creation into existence, before he made any of us or any of the things that we see, 
He knew that when he created people that we would use the, the freedom that he gives us of making real choices with real consequences to rebel. He knew that we would sin. And he knew that he was going to send Jesus in the flesh to save us before the foundation of the world. And so what that means is before he spoke anything into existence, God knew the hope of all creation, the center of all things was Jesus. That everything that we are, all of the cosmos, all of history, all of this world, all of everything that we live and go through, Jesus is central in everything. He is the bullseye. He's the thing that we don't want to forget. That God has come to us and God's plan was always to send Jesus that we could be holy and blameless before him. And so as we come into the season, I want us to be reminded of that fact. And not just at Christmas, but in each and every day, I want us to be grounded in the reality that before the creation of the world, that God chose us in Jesus to be before him, that he is central in everything. And so that's why we have the conviction here as a church. It's, it's passages like Ephesians chapter 1 or, or Luke 24, where Jesus meets with the apostles after the ascension. Or I'm sorry, right before the ascension, after his resurrection, and he meets with them and it says he opened the scriptures to show them everything that pertained to him, that why he had to come and he laid it out for him and he shows them all that. And so here we have this conviction of Christ centered preaching. We want Jesus to be central in everything because Jesus is central in everything. Whether we recognize it or not, that is the truth. And so one of the Great teachers I had in my life. Actually, two men taught a class called Christ-Centered Preaching that I took many years ago. Dr. Tim Keller and Dr. Edmund Clowney. And these godly men walked you through how to continue to point to Jesus and everything. And for years, I've shared a clip uh, from one of Dr. Keller, Tim Keller's sermons. called. Uh, uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's something about, um, I don't remember the exact title, but it's, it's like, uh, is the, what's the Bible really about? And it's about a three-minute clip that they took from one of his sermons, and I just love the way he does it, the way he lays it out. I actually went and found the sermon this week uh, and looked over it again and was thinking about the way he says it. And he asked the question at the very beginning of this clip. He says, is the Bible really about me and what I must do, or is the Bible really about Jesus and what he's done? And then he starts to unfold and show for you how all these things point to Jesus. And so I'm going to quote Dr. Keller for just a second here, but listen to the way he unfolds it. He's talking about how all the characters in the Bible are pointing us ahead to who Jesus is. See, oftentimes we read the Bible as we see the main character and then we kind of place ourselves in the story. How can I be like them? But what Dr. Keller is reminding us is all those people and all the things that we see in Scripture are actually pointing ahead to Jesus. Because he's the one before the foundation of the world that God chose you in him to be holy and blameless before him. And so listen to the way he says it. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who also faced a test in the garden, but he didn't fail it and drag us down. He succeeded and brought us up. He is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel, the innocent slain one whose blood cries out, but not for condemnation as it did against Cain, but for grace and acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, whose father didn't just raise the dagger over him, but he brought it down so it didn't have to come down on us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who stands at the right hand of the throne and forgives and saves the ones who betrayed him. 
Jesus is the true and better David. He risked his life and his victory over the giant is imputed to all of his people who didn't even raise a stone or risk themselves at all. Jesus is greater than David, who's greater, who has a greater victory that is imputed to us even though we haven't done a thing. Jesus is the true and greater rock of Moses who is struck with the rod of justice and brings us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice to whom all the sacrifices point. He's the true and better temple to which the temple points. He's the true and better clean laws to which all the clean laws point because he is our cleanliness. Jesus is the true and better Esther who risked the palace and said, if I perish, I perish to save her people. But Jesus Christ lost the ultimate palace and he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish in order to save his people. He is the true and better Passover lamb. He is the true and better temple. He is the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king. And he ends at the end by saying, the Bible is not about you. It is about Jesus and what he has done. And that's exactly what Ephesians 1 says. It's all pointing us to Jesus. He's the bullseye. And so when we think about Advent, celebrating the arrival of Jesus, let us make the season be marked with Jesus as the center of all of it. And so this morning, as we start, what we're going to do for Advent is we're really just going to take different themes throughout the Old Testament, and we're going to see how Jesus is the true and better, right? The true and better priest and the true and better king. Today, we're going to begin by looking at that text I just read to you in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to see how Jesus is the true and better promise that all of the promises of God find their yes in him, as Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Second Corinthians. And so the way I want us to think about this and look at it together this morning is first, I want us just to consider how we miss that. How do we get tunnel vision when we miss that Jesus is the better promise, that he is the one that all the promises find their yes in him? How do we miss it? Secondly, how do we see it fully? And then lastly, I just want us to consider a couple things as we think about the season of Advent and what it means for us. And so let's start with how we miss it. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 15 here as the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And let me just set the scene for you. If you know anything about 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these letters to the church in Corinth that he helped plant and start. He loves these people dearly. Uh, he has this ongoing uh, correspondence with them. He's helped start this church, but they're a mess in a whole lot of ways. God's grace has come in this place, and there are many people became got saved, and the church comes up in Corinth. But Corinth is a very worldly place, very affluent, and these people are easily swayed by all the things that are happening and going around them. And so Paul continues in this correspondence to remind them of what is true of them in Jesus and what it means for them. And so with that said, in verse 15, he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. And he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And so Paul hasn't come to him yet. But he says, I've wanted to come to you and I haven't. And so he asked this rhetorical question in verse 17. He says, was I 
vacillating when I said that? Was I not really serious? Am I just saying that I want to come to you? And he says, no, that is not the case. He's saying, I love you and I want to come to you and I want to continue to encourage you in your faith. But then in verse 18, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so I want you to just think about what he's saying here, big picture. If we place it in the context of 2 Corinthians and what's happening, they're a mess. And if you read through First and 2 Corinthians, you see all kinds of things that they're dealing with. And they're struggling with and they're not fully following God in all these ways. And Paul's warning them and correcting them and continuing to remind them. And so part of what's happening here when he says, I wanted to come to you, but I haven't yet. Part of their thinking may be, well, he hasn't come because he's mad at us because we're, we're messing all these things up. And he's saying, that's not true. That's not why I haven't come. He hasn't come because of other circumstances. He's wanted to come. But what he's saying to them there, saying to them here is, I love you. And I want you to understand who God is. And I want you to see the fullness of what God is for you, that he's always for you and all these things and that his truth stands in your life above all else. And that's what he wants them to see. And that's what he's saying here. But that leads us to, well, how do they miss it? Why are they missing that if that's true? And they miss it the same way that we miss it at different times. And it's the sinfulness of our hearts. It's unbelief. God tells us things about who he is and he reveals to us who he is. And he tells us what it looks like to love him and to honor him and to walk with him. And in our sinfulness, in our unbelief, we ignore him. We rebel against him. Our heart is deceitful and we decide that we know better. And there's a whole host of reasons why. We all do this at different times. Some of it's our emotions. We get emotional in the way we're feeling about things. And my feelings feel different than what God is telling me. And so oftentimes we decide to go with our feelings. Sometimes it's the influences that are around us. Sometimes it's the world and what the world tells us and what it says. And it pulls us away from those things that God has told us. And we make a decision to go, well, this is what God says but this is what the world says and all my friends and everybody else is saying this. So I think I'm going to go with this. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. They were operating in their sinfulness and the deceitfulness of their hearts rather than holding fast to what God has says. And Paul, because he loves them, keeps reminding them, this is not what God has for you. This is not your best. And I want you to see this clearly. And so when you read these letters, first and second Corinthians, there's this pleading. Paul loves these people. And he desperately wants them to see the truth that they're missing. But they're first missing it because of the sinfulness of their heart. And it's the same way that we miss the things that God has told us. Unbelief in the promises of what God has told us. We think we know better. And so we hold fast to the things that we think rather than what God says. And so that's kind of foundational, right? It's pretty straightforward. We miss some of the things that God tells us and we rebel because of the sinfulness of our hearts. But there's another layer kind of above that that I want you to think of that's maybe a little more subtle. And I think part of it is we take the things that God tells us and we take the promises that God has given us and we place them in the context of the world and we remove them from the context of the Bible. I said something similar to this a few weeks ago. And I've been thinking about that idea a lot because I think that's what leads us astray so often. We take what God's word says and we take it out of context 
and we place it into what our world says and we reinterpret it to mean what we want it to mean. And so instead of Jesus being Lord of our life with his word authoritatively standing over us, we take bits and pieces and we make it kind of say what we want it to say. And instead of Jesus being Lord of our life, he becomes our assistant. He becomes our our guru. Like I'll take some of his sayings and I'll sprinkle them in my life where they affirm the things that I already want to believe. But what happens when we do that is we're not responding to the God of the Bible. We're not actually holding fast to God's word anymore because we've distorted it in such a way that it's not actually saying what scripture says. And so we superimpose our worldview over scripture and then we read it through those lens rather than going to what scripture says and letting that stand over us and correct us. And we can do this and it's easy to slip into do the, doing this and not even notice it. And so I would say, I would dare to say that every single one of us has done this at many times in our life. Most of the time, unknowingly. And we think we're holding fast to what it says, but we've removed it from the context. And so it's so important that we see that. I had a friend the other day, uh, he wrote a thing on social media. A guy that I really respect, a guy that I did my student teaching with many years ago. He's been teaching the Bible for a long time and he's a godly man. And he was talking about a friend of his saying in, in this thing that he wrote. He wrote an article about it. But he's talking about a friend of his saying that my Jesus would never do X. And you hear that a lot today. And it was it had to do with some political issue. My Jesus would never do whatever. And I don't even remember what the issue was. But what he said, and he said it so well, he said it better than I can say it as he wrote that. He said the idea of when we start to say my Jesus We've already put Jesus kind of in, in my pocket, right? My Jesus is like this. And he's like, we've not coming to God for who he is. It's not my Jesus. Jesus is the Lord and Savior that is over me. It doesn't work the other way. And he said it so well, but just the importance of seeing that. And when we start to take it and put the things of God and we put them in that way and kind of put him underneath what we already think and how we feel and the way we operate in our worldview and our political ideas and all these things, we quickly miss it. And so we have to come to God's word for the way he has revealed it and fight to see it in the way he's revealed it. And so we do this a lot today, a lot based on emotion uh, our, our, our worldview, the what world is saying around us, and we reinterpret the, reinterpret the scripture in that way. I'll give you an example. If you would turn with me to John chapter three, right? So you're going to go left this time, right? First and second Corinthians, Romans, Acts, then John, if you're going right to left, going backwards. But John chapter three, 1108 in the Pew Bible, if you want to read along. But John chapter three, verse 16, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, right? Uh, if you've grown up in the church, say John three sixteen, almost everybody can immediately quote it from memory. But John chapter three, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the day, and he's explaining to him how you're born again and what it means to come to faith in Christ and what it looks like. And we get to John chapter three and verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? A lot of you can do that autopilot. You don't even have to think about it. There it is, right? Jesus so loves the world. He's come to save us. Verse 17 says almost the exact same thing. And we love verse 17. Our culture loves verse 17. We're cool with verse 17. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I've heard people use that. And they say that. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. They'll even know the chapter and verse. Right? It is what it says. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. He loves everyone. And we take that and we place it in the thoughts of our world today. Anything you feel and anything you believe and anything you want to do, that is your true self and you should follow how you feel. And our culture says that all the time. And then they'll quote things like, and Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He just loves and accepts you. And so you live your life and you do whatever you want in all things. And we take that scripture and we place it in the predominant worldview that your feelings are supreme and what you want to do is your true self and you follow how you feel and that's true and God doesn't condemn you and he just loves you and he meets you there. Now God does love you. But he loves you so much that he doesn't just leave you in your sin. Look at what it says in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Because Jesus is the only son of God and he is the only way to salvation. And that if you reject him, you stand condemned. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because we're condemned already. He did come to save us. He did come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God so loves the world that we can be saved through him. He's come to lay down his life. But verse 19 says, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Very different context when you place verse 17 in the context of what it's saying. That we are all hopelessly lost apart from Jesus and we desperately need a savior. And when we miss that and we place it in the context of the world, we miss completely what it's saying. And so today we miss oftentimes the centrality of Jesus in all things. That he's the bullseye, that he's the center because we interpret scripture through our worldview or what the world says or how we feel or the way our emotions are in that day rather than what God has said is true that we desperately need a savior and so we can miss it when we start to miss when we have unbelief in our heart and we begin to interpret scripture through what the world says rather than what God's word says and so we have to let God's word stand over us And so that leads us to the second part. Well, how do we see the truth that Jesus is central, that he is the center? How do we see the the truth of, of Christ as the bullseye? And so look at what he says in verse 19 and 20. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. Sylvanius and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so we have to see Jesus for who he is. And he tells you right here, he says, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you. Same thing it says in John chapter three, the only son of God, the only one that can save us. There's an exclusive claim to who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He is the son of God, the one who has come to save us. 
And we have to start there. And so we ask the question, well, who is Jesus and what has he done and what does that lead to? If he's the bullseye, we have to walk through that. And so Jesus is the only son of God, God in the flesh that has come to us to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. It goes back to uh, what Dr. Keller says about, well, what's the Bible really about? Is it really about you and what you must do? Or is it really about Jesus and what he's done? And it's about Jesus and what he's done because he is the only way in which we can be saved. He is the only perfect, holy, righteous one. And we desperately need him. And it's only him that can save us. And so Jesus comes and he lives the life that we haven't lived. And he dies the death that we deserve as he willingly lays down his life for us. And then he's raised from the dead. Showing that God has accepted his sacrifice. That we can be made new in him because of what he's done. And then we transfer our trust from ourselves and what we do to what Jesus has done. And that is how we are saved. By grace, through faith, we have been saved. And it's not our own doing, but a gift of God in Jesus. And that's the way that we are brought into relationship. That's how we can stand holy and blameless for before him. All because of what Christ has done. Right? He's the bullseye. He's the sinner. He's the one that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so I want you to think about that. As you walk through all of the Old Testament and all of the Bible, what begins to unfold is that God is coming to save his good creation, but that there's no person that can do it, that God himself is going to have to come. That's the story of the Bible. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter three, God says, I'm going to send one who's going to fix this. One's going to come and he's going to set things right. And it's all about Jesus pointing ahead until he arrives. And then the second half, the New Testament is all about explaining what he's done. But it's all about Jesus. And it all finds it comes together in him. That's why it says all of the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, he's explaining them how to read the Bible. So all the promises of God find their yes in him. But there's a second part that I want you really to think about. So we say he comes and he does for us and we're saved by transferring our trust. And then we die and we get what? You know, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We get everlasting life. We get to be with God. We get to come into his presence. We get to go to heaven. And so we say that. Well, Jesus died for my sins, and so I get to go to heaven. And then what? We get what? And I ask this question to people. Talk about, at, at funerals, people will come up and go, oh, I can't wait. We'll all be reunited. We'll get to go to heaven. And I get to see Aunt Sally. And I get to see my mom. And I get to see, yes, if they're in Jesus... We'll be united with the saints that have gone before us. That is true. But what do we get? We get him. (laughs) Exactly. We get him. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus because we get him. It's not what he can give us other things. It's we get him. We are going to stand before him in glory and realize that everything good that we've ever seen or ever done or ever been part of was because of him and him alone. And we will be overwhelmed with the joy that can only come from our Savior and nothing else. Yes, there'll be 
the saints that have gone before us. And yes, your aunt and your your dearly beloved spouse or your brother or the people that you want to see, but you're going to know everything good in them is because of Jesus. And you are going to be overwhelmed with the glory of who he is. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus because he is the way in which we get there, but he is also the ends that we get. He's it. He and he alone is it. That we're going to worship the Father through the Spirit because of what Jesus has done, but we're always going to see it's going to come through what Jesus has done. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him to be holy and blameless before him. And it all points us to Jesus. So how do we grow in that? How do we not miss that? How do we continue to see that day after day? Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And he has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so we continue to seek him daily through the power of the spirit. We say this all the time here. We want to grow in discipleship, grow in obedience, grow in our relationship with the Lord, continuing to see Jesus, continuing to follow him in all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is the part that I don't want us to miss. When we say all of the promises find their yes in him, he's the means, but he's also the end. And so we talk about how do we grow in it? We continue to seek his face through the power of the spirit. We continue to seek to know him and to love him, not to just use him for other means. That's what we often do, is it not? I start to pray a whole lot when I need some things from God versus seeking his face because I want to know him. Seeing him as the ends rather than just a means to the ends. And so when we start to continue to seek him day in and day out and all that he's done and all that he is. You know, John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room and he's talked so much about the spirit and what the Holy Spirit will do and the relationship of the father and the son and the spirit. In chapter 16, in verse 13, he says, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. He will declare what is mine and give it to you. And he gives us the spirit. And Paul talks about that here, having the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And he comes and he continues to remind us of who Jesus is. And we continue to seek him. And we will never exhaust the riches of who he is. I got to spend time with my brother this week in Texas. My brother Jeremiah is a pastor in Houston. And one night we went out and we were sitting under the stars and uh, having a campfire. And Jeremiah and I were sitting there looking up at the stars and we were actually talking about this sermon. He was asking me, well, what are you preaching on? And so we're talking about this and we're talking about Jesus and not being able to exhaust the riches of who he is. And his son, Finn, who's 11, walked up and he said, are you guys, you're doing preacherly things, aren't you? <laughs> he said, is that what you're doing, dad? And he said, no, we're just, we're just talking about Jesus. And I said, Finn, do you realize that we can talk about Jesus every day for the rest of our existence, for eternity, and we will never exhaust the glory of who he is? And that is so true. And how often we miss that that is true. That he is better than everything else. That he is the thing that all things hold together. And so as we come into this season, season of Advent, 
I just want to remind you of that. And we'll end here this morning. But I want to remind you that Jesus is the greatest gift there is. And he is not to just be used as a means to an end. He is the end. He is the thing that you're looking for. And if that is true, then that means that Jesus is the perfect gift for you. And so as you come into Advent and you come into this season, it is so easy to be overwhelmed with all the other things that are going on. Good things. Getting and giving gifts and having time with family and sharing meals. And those are all good gifts that God gives us. But let us not get to the place where we use Jesus as a means to do these other things. Let us arrange all of the other things around Jesus as the central thing because he is the thing. He is the true and better promise. He is the thing that will meet you in the midst of your need. All your hopes and dreams of your life are found in him because you were created for him. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that you could be holy and blameless before him. And it's all his doing and all of history has been about this. And so I would just encourage you, but also challenge you of how do you make this season around the truth of who we are in Jesus? Begin to reorder the way that you operate around this because he is the true and better promise. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you. We thank you that you have loved us so much that you came to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that in your creation, knowing that we would rebel, that you chose to operate in the way that you have, that you chose to to save us by no doing of our own, that you loved us so much that you've come to us. We pray that we would see more fully each and every day your glory. Help us to fight to see those things. Help us to fight to keep you central in all things. We pray that we would be ever uh, just present with who you are, that we would continue to be aware of the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life, that you continue to show us what is true of us, that we would spend time in your word, that we would continue to seek you in all things. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.